0: Honor is a concept that is closely related to the common good, especially to the political common good. Aristotle notes that honor seems to be the end of the political life. In truth, however, he goes on to argue, the end of political life is virtue. We seek honor to convince ourselves that we are good, since honor is the recognition that others give to our virtue. We human beings long to contribute to something greater than ourselves and to have our contribution confirmed by the recognition of others, by honor. Jane Eyre in Charlotte Bronte's novel, after turning up destitute at the doorstep of Moore House, ends up as a schoolteacher in a small village the usefulness of her work as a school teacher to the community and the recognition, the honor that she receives from the villagers for that contribution make her feel that she is sitting in sunshine, calm and sweet, as she says, and that her feelings are budding and blooming under its rays. What is true of honor in a small village is even more true in a greater properly political society that can achieve a greater common good. In atomized mass societies, however, we are familiar with the phenomenon of people becoming estranged from the common good. To lack the recognition of others and to feel that one is not contributing to the common good at all can lead to seeing one's own life as worthless. This can lead to depression, rage, and despair. Honor is given especially to those who chose the common good above their own private advantage. This is a President's Day lecture in honor of George Washington's birthday. I have certain disagreements with the principle implied in much of the honor that is given to him. History, writes Washington's first biographer, Mason Weems, has lavished its choicest praises on those magnanimous patriots who in their wars for liberty and their country have cheerfully sacrificed their own wealth to defeat the common enemy. Washington is admired above all for the primacy that he gave to the common good over his own private advantage. To prefer the common good to one's own advantage is an honorable and desirable, but also an arduous good. It requires self-transcendence, a stepping out of the confines of the private goods most immediately known to us through our sense powers to a more universal good known by reason. We tend to associate love of the common good with heroic past ages. And this is a sign that it is an arduous good. Our own age, we tend to think, is pusillanimous and individualistic. In better times, however, there were noble and magnanimous men who were devoted to the common good. This contrast is made in a remarkable conversation on the common good in David Foster Wallace's unfinished novel, The Pale King. The novel is set in an IRS regional examination center in Peoria, Illinois, in the 1980s. A group of bureaucrats at the center have gotten stuck in an elevator. One of them, DeWitt Glendenning, opines that Americans in the year 1980 have gone crazy, regressed somehow. The craziness amounts to a denial of the common good. We don't think of ourselves as citizens, he says, in the old sense of being small parts of something larger and infinitely more important to which we have serious responsibilities. And again, we think of ourselves as citizens when it comes to our rights and privileges, but not our responsibilities. Glenn Denning thinks that the mentality of for-profit business corporations, of America's capitalist economy, has seeped into the mentality of the people themselves. And here's a somewhat longer quote from him. Corporations aren't citizens or neighbors, or parents. They can't vote or serve in combat. They don't learn the Pledge of Allegiance. They don't have souls. They're revenue machines. It seems that we as individual citizens have adopted a corporate attitude. That our ultimate obligation is to ourselves. That unless it's illegal or there are direct, practical consequences for ourselves, any activity is okay. By contrast, Glendening points to the founding fathers of the United States as men who loved and cared for the common good more than their own advantage. Again, quote from Glendenning. And, and now I'm speaking of Jefferson, Madison, Adams, Franklin, the real church fathers, what raised the American experiment beyond great imagination and made it very nearly work was not just these men's intelligence but their profound moral enlightenment, their sense of civics, the fact that they cared more about the nation and the citizens than about themselves. They could have just set America up as an oligarchy where powerful Eastern industrialists and southern landowners controlled all the power and ruled with an iron glove, with an iron hand in a glove of liberal rhetoric. These founding fathers were geniuses of civic virtue. They were heroes, thus far, Glendenning. His praise here is clearly excessive when he calls the founding fathers the real church fathers. Um, but it points to how great a good the common good is that it leads to such excessive honor. Glendenning is aware that a laudato temporis acti, who contrasts the good old days when people were civic minded with the way things are now is considered a ridiculous figure. But I think that such an attitude is reasonable and good. No one can think well about the common good who does not have piety toward the past. It ought, of course, to be an honest piety that recognizes the flaws of one's political forebears. And Glenn Denning does acknowledge such flaws. The founders of the American Republic, Glenn Denning says, assumed their descendants would be like them, rational, honorable, civic-minded. Men with at least as much concern for the common good as for personal advantage. The problem with this assumption, he goes on to say, was that the polity that they had set up, a commercial republic in which the democratic element predominated, had an inevitable tendency to erode concern for the common good. Again, a somewhat longer quote from him. De Tocqueville says somewhere that one thing about democracies and their individualism is that they, by their very nature, corrode the citizen's sense of true community, of having real true fellow citizens whose interests and concerns were the same as his. This is a kind of ghastly irony, if you think about it. Since a form of government engineered to produce equality makes its citizens so individualistic and self-absorbed that they end up as solipsists, navel-gazers." Thus far, David Foster Wallace's Glenn Denning. Another one of the bureaucrats who's stuck in this elevator says, de Tocqueville's thrust is that it's in the democratic citizen's nature to be like a leaf that doesn't believe in the tree it's a part of. So to sum up the, some of the notes of the common good that have emerged from this initial look at the novelists at Bronte and Wallace, the common good gives life purpose and worth, confirmed for us by honor. The common good is more important, infinitely more important, Glenn Denning says, than private advantage. To love the common good aright leads us to see ourselves as parts of a larger whole. True love for the common good requires heroic virtue, and democratic individualism can erode such virtue, and finally such heroic virtue has a quasi-religious character, such that the founders of a polity can be compared to the Church Fathers. My purpose in this lecture is to give an account of the common good, an account that explains the notes that I've just enumerated. In this account, I will be guided by an explosively brilliant book entitled On the Primacy of the Common Good Against the Personalists by Charles de koning De Koenig was a Belgian philosopher who taught at the University of Laval in Quebec City in Canada, where the founders of Thomas Aquinas College were his students. I read On the Primacy of the Common Good when I was a student uh, at the original TAC. Um, And uh, when I told Dr. MacArthur, the founding president of TAC, what I was reading, He said to me, some people say that is one of the most important books of the 20th century. I don't know about that. I haven't read enough books. But I do know that it is a mighty good book. (laughs) That was MacArthur. I had first heard of that book some years earlier um, from my father, who started reading it when he was waiting for a flight in the airport. As he read, he became so absorbed in the argument that he forgot his surroundings and missed his flight. (laughs) The airport intercom announced his name multiple times, but he didn't notice. (laughs) Before turning to the exposition of the common good, I want to say a few words about the subtitle, Against the Personalists. De Koning's book was published in 1943, during World War II. One year earlier, European Catholics who had fled from the war to America published a manifesto entitled In the Face of the World's Crisis, condemning fascism, national socialism, and Bolshevism, and proposing principles for the reconstruction of Europe after the defeat of such ideologies. The manifesto was signed by a number of prominent uh, politicians, artists, and intellectuals including Luigi Sturzo, the Italian politician, Sigrid Unset, Frank Schied, Dietrich von Hildebrand, and Yves Simon. It was, initi- it was initiated by Auguste Viat and Father Joseph Thomas de Laux, uh, But when Jacques Maritain, at the time the most famous Catholic philosophy in the world, joined the project, his point of view became dominant. Maritain was an attractive and charismatic personality and a brilliant thinker. He was, however, impulsive, often changing his mind on account of the changed circumstances in which he found himself. Thus, he had been a supporter of the anti-democratic movement Action Française, but after the papal condemnation of that movement in 1926, he had reacted violently in the opposite direction and had become the most prominent Catholic supporter of democracy. Moreover, he had studied philosophy at a modern secular university before his conversion. And while he wanted to be a disciple of St. Thomas, sometimes his interpretations were colored by intellectual habits acquired from modern philosophy. In the 30s and 40s, Maritain was deeply concerned about the oppressive subordination of human persons to the state in totalitarian regimes. He wanted to show that the state is for persons and not vice versa. As a would-be disciple of St. Thomas, however, Maritain needed to deal with the many texts in which St. Thomas speaks of the citizen relating to the civitas, the political community, as a part to a whole and therefore of the citizen as ordered to the good of the whole, as every part is ordered to the good of its whole." Maritain solved this difficulty by a distinction between man as an individual and man as a person. As an individual, Maritain argues, man is a fragment of matter. He is a part of greater wholes, including the state, and as a part, he is ordered to the goods of those wholes. As a person, however, man is a spiritual whole who transcends the entire created universe. And thus, he is not subordinated to the common good of society, but rather that common good is subordinated to him. Here's a quote from Maritain. It is to the perfect achievement of the person and of its supra-temporal aspirations That society itself and its common good are subordinated as to the end of another order which transcends them. Society exists for each person and is subordinated to it. End of that quote. The manifesto published in 1942 in the face of the world's crisis did not explicitly mention this distinction between individual and person. It did, however, strongly condemn totalitarian ideologies, which reduced the person to a mere part of society as a leaf is a part of a tree. And it called instead for a political order based on the primacy of the person and of personal rights and liberties. De Koning certainly shared Maritain's concern with rejecting totalitarian oppression. In fact, de Koenig himself was even involved in drafting uh, the manifesto in the face of the world's crisis. But at the last minute, he pulled out of the project and he refused to sign the document. In a letter to another member of the drafting committee, de Koenig explained the main reason why he was refusing to sign. Quote, If we do not add anything about the primacy of the common good, the document will appear purely personalist, end quote. In the same year, de Konig gave a lecture which formed the first part of On the Primacy of the Common Good. In the foreword to On the Primacy, which was published the following year, de Konig emphasized his agreement with the anti-totalitarian thrust of the manifesto. Quote now from Charles de Konig. Human society is made for man. Any political doctrine that ignores man's rational nature and consequently denies his dignity and liberty is vitiated at its root and subjects man to inhuman conditions. That is why one rightly opposes totalitarian doctrines in the name of the dignity of man, end quote. But he goes on to argue this legitimate reaction against totalitarianism has led in the personalists. He doesn't say who these people are, but most people assumed he was talking about Maritain. Led the personalists to an understanding of human dignity as something absolute, not dependent on a more universal good than the person. In this, de Konig argued, the personalists had unwittingly adopted some of the anthropocentric premises of modern philosophy, which had ultimately led to Marxism. Thus, de Konig argued, the personalists actually shared some of the same errors as the totalitarians whom they wanted to oppose. So much uh, for the subtitle. Now, let's turn to the common good itself. De Konink begins his discussion of the common good with a summary of St. Thomas's teaching on the good. Quote, the good is that which all things desire insofar as they desire their perfection. Thus the good has the notion, the raison, the ratio, of final cause. Thus it is the first of causes. And consequently, diffusive of itself. To define the good as that which all desire is to define it as that which attracts and fulfills our desire. Now, what first attracts our desires are the objects of our natural abilities. The objects of our sense faculties, tasty food, fragrant perfume, beautiful sounds, light and color, the limbs that carnal love embraces, as Augustine puts it, Um, all of these things attract sensual desire. And all of these things, and in addition, the objects of our spiritual faculties, such as truth, justice, and spiritual friendship, also attract our will our spiritual desire. Because these objects are good, what leads to those objects or follows on their attainment is also desirable for us. We desire the activities whereby our abilities attain to their objects. I can call the activity of tasting a cookie or knowing the truth good. I can also call the habit that enables my faculty to act well good. Science is good because it enables me to know well. Uh, What is useful for attaining a good object can also be called good. Thus, you may not believe this, but studying can be called good insofar as it is useful for coming to know the truth. And then what follows on the attainment of the object, the delight or joy that results from obtaining the good can also be called good. Hence, the joy that I feel when I know the truth is good, desirable. What is most good, however, is the good object itself that I desire. Since the activity of obtaining it and the things useful for obtaining it are for its sake, And the delight that follows on obtaining it is clearly secondary to it. I would not choose to have the delight of knowledge without actually knowing anything. Our natural abilities are potencies of our nature that are actualized by attaining their objects. And we ourselves are completed, perfected, by such actualization. Desire in the strict sense, follows on knowledge. The good attracts us when we know it. But in an extended sense, we can call any intrinsic inclination to actualization desire. Thus, all natural things, since they have an intrinsic principle of motion, desire their actualization, their perfection, their good. As we ascend from inanimate to animate to sensitive to rational beings, we see that the higher beings are inclined to more distant objects which at the same time they take more deeply into their interior. A rock has a certain inclination to other heavy objects, but these remain outside of the rock. A plant is able to take nutrients into itself and transform them into its substance. An animal can sense the qualities of another thing as other. It can see blue without itself becoming blue. Finally, human beings can take in all of reality through universal knowledge. We can know things quite distinct and distant from ourselves, but by knowing them, we take them deep into our interior life. What a piece of work is man, says Hamlet. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. Man cannot be perfected merely by living the life of nutrition and growth or of sensual pleasure. Rather, man is perfected by actualizing the faculties most specific to his nature. And in one way, what is most specific to man is moral action in which the passions and activities of the sensual part of the soul are guided and ennobled by reason. We eat and drink, as do the beasts. But when a man is perfected by the virtue of temperance, his eating and drinking takes on a spiritual character. Therefore, moral action can be called the purpose of man, his happiness. And yet, man is even nobler in the activity of reason itself, in understanding and science, and above all, in wisdom. He becomes like a god, doing an activity that is more than human. Thus, the end of man is twofold, a lower, more human happiness, the end of the active life, and a higher, more divine happiness, the end of the contemplative life. The active life is good in itself, but it is also useful for the contemplative life, as long as our sensual passions are in turmoil We're distracted and cannot contemplate. Only when our passions have been ordered by moral virtue do we have the calm we need to contemplate the truth. The good that we attain in happiness brings us to completion. It perfects us. It is our end. But this good has a twofold character. Primarily, the good is the object attained by our activity, the truth in the contemplative life. We can call this objective happiness. But secondarily, it is the activity whereby we attain our object, knowledge, for example, which we call subjective happiness. The two are linked. The object is only perfective of us insofar as we attain to it by our activity. Nevertheless, we can see that it is the object that has priority. Our activity is for the sake of it. As our end, the good is the final cause, the cause of causes. It causes the causality of all the other causes. The matter can only cause insofar as it is is actualized by the form. And the form cannot come into the matter unless some agent draws it out or pours it in. But an agent cannot act unless there is some reason for his action. And this reason is the end. Therefore, the final, the last cause is also the first cause. Consequently, de Konink writes, it is diffusive of itself. The good pours itself out and spreads its goodness to the things inclined towards it. In reaching the good, the things that are inclined to it become themselves good. Now we come to the commonness of the common good. The common good is common, or universal, precisely as a cause. A higher cause extends its causality to more effects. A higher and more perfect good diffuses its goodness to more beings. It is more communicable to many. The goodness of a private good, say a cookie, Um, can only really be diffused to a single person. Hence, it is called a singular good. The goodness of a cookie is divided uh, when we share it. If we both enjoy the cookie, that means I enjoy half of it and you enjoy whatever is left over. (laughs) Um, But a higher good, say peace or truth, for example can be communicated in, in its entirety to many without being diminished or divided. My knowledge of the truth does not diminish your knowledge. My sharing in the peace does not reduce the supply of peace. The more elevated good is more diffusive and communicable because it is more good. Its goodness is superabundant. Hence, de Koning argues, it is the better good of the singular. That is, the more elevated good, although in a way more distant from me, higher than me, is really more perfective of me. It communicates its goodness more deeply to me. The common good is not common by being a collection of private goods. It is a single good, shared by many. To attain a common good is to attain it as a common good as the good of a community, which is formed by communion in that good. De Koning illustrates this with the example of a household. The good of the family, he says, is better than the singular good, not because all the members of the family find in it their singular good. The good of the family is better because for each of its individual members it is also the good of the others. That is, the common good of the family is not loved merely as a useful good that helps the family members attain private goods, such as food and warmth. Rather, it is loved precisely as a common good. In fact, the common good is what makes the domestic society, the family, to be a society. Formally speaking, de Koenig argues, I love the other members of my family because their share is with me in the common good. The common good is not the good of a collective taken as a sort of super individual, a Leviathan. In that case, the common good would not really be common. It would be the private good of the collective or of its leaders. This is how de Koning distinguishes himself from the totalitarians. Individual members of society are not like organic parts of a body which have no good of their own. Rather, the common good is the good of each of the members of society. The error of the personalists is that they assume a totalitarian notion of the common good as a collective good and see the best goods of the person as purely personal, singular goods. So they just reverse the order of goods established by the totalitarians, but do not correct the faulty understanding of the good. On the contrary, de Koenig argues, a thing's own perfection, its own good, most perfective of itself, is found in the common good as common. Contrary to what the character in The Pale King says, a person is not a part of a society the way a leaf is part of a tree. The good of the tree belongs to the tree as a single substantial whole. The leaf is not a full substance. It has being and goodness only as a part. Nevertheless, the relation of the singular to the common good does have an analogical similarity to the relation of part to whole. This becomes clearer when De Konig moves to a con- consideration of our love of the common good. De Koenig begins his discussion of the love of the common good with natural love. The love that is not elicited by knowledge, but is rather an inclination put into things by the divine intelligence. And De Koenig distinguishes between four different senses of a thing's own perfection, towards which it tends by natural love. The first level is the good of the individual as an individual. This is the good that an animal seeks when it seeks nourishment for the conservation of its singular being. The second level is the good of a thing that belongs to it on account of its species. This is the good, for example, that animals seek in reproduction. Is this really a thing's own perfection? Is it not the perfection of another? No, says De Konig. and now quote from De Connick. The, the animal prefers naturally, that is to say, in virtue of the inclination which is in it by nature, the good of the species to its singular good. Every singular naturally loves the good of its species more than its singular good. That is because the good of the species is a greater good for the singular than its singular good. Therefore, this is not a species which abstracts from individuals and desires its proper good against the natural desire of the individual. It is the singular itself which by nature desires the good of the species rather than its singular good." End quote. Now, the level of the good proper to something on account of its species is the level at which the common goods of human societies are found. The good of the family and the good of the polity are ordered not merely to the survival and perfection of an individual, but to the survival of the human species and, in the polity, the perfection of all the manifold potentialities of human nature. The third level of a thing's own perfection, toward which it tends by natural desire, natural love, is the good that belongs to it on account of its genus. This is the good towards which equivocal agents, that is the angels, act when they communicate goodness to many species. And it is the good of intellectual substances as substances. Now, this is the level of the good that, it is is at this level of the good that belongs to us on account of our genus that we human beings seek the good of the contemplative life. The genus in question here is not the univocal genus of animal, at the summit of which man stands, but rather it is the analogical quasi genus of intelligent beings, of angels and men at the very bottom of which stands man. Man is able to attain by by intelligence to the great common good that is the order of the whole universe. But there is a fourth level of a thing's own perfection. And that is the good that it has on account of the likeness that exists between an effect and a cause quote from de Konig, it is thus that God, a purely and simply universal good, is the proper good that all things desire naturally as the highest and best good and which confers on all things their entire being. Every perfection found in created things is a reflection of the perfection of God. And therefore, there is a similitude between God and creatures. The perfection that creatures have is a participation in God's perfection. To participate is to take part in something without removing a part from it. So my reflection in a mirror, for example, participates in my appearance without removing my appearance from me. God does not have parts. But creatures share in God in an incomplete, that is, in a partial way. Therefore, de Koning can consider the love of creatures for the creator as love of parts for a whole. Creatures are ordered to their creator the way parts are ordered to a whole. The perfection that each creature desires consists in an ever greater likeness to the creator. But this means that the perfection that the creatures desire only ever exist in a secondary way in the creatures themselves. They exist fully only in God. Therefore, for me to love my own perfection means to love God more than myself. God is, as it were, my true self. De Koning then turns to the love that is elicited by knowledge. And here he sees the greatness of the common good even more clearly. While an animal has a natural inclination to the good of its species, the love elicited by its sense knowledge cannot reach that far. By elicited love, an animal seeks only singular, sensible goods. We, however, um, as intelligent beings, more or less, are able by an elicited love to love the universal common good. To love the common good as a common good is not to order the common good to oneself, as one orders a private good, but rather to order oneself to the common good. The private good of a cookie is ordered to me. I love the cookie for my own sake. In a sense, I am the end of the cookie. <laughs> or many cookies. <laughs> <laughs> but to love a superabundant, diffusive, and elevated good, which is thereby common, is to order myself to that good. De Koning notes that such love of a more common good requires a more excellent virtue. Virtue is the quality that enables a thing to do its own work or proper activity well. In man, there are three different levels of virtue, monastic or ethical virtue, domestic or economic virtue, and political virtue. This corresponds to the threefold division of moral science made by Aristotle, monastics or ethics, domestics, or economics, and politics. Monastic in this context has unfortunately nothing to do with monks and monasteries, um, although I'm a monk. It is derived from the Greek monos, meaning alone, solitary. Monastic virtue, monastic virtues are the qualities that enable a human person to do his proper activity as an individual well. For example, monastic courage is the courage that enables a man to defend his own person against dangers well, rationally. Domestic virtues are the virtues that perfect a human being as a member of the household or family. For example, domestic courage enables a man to defend the common good of his household well. Now, the family or household is the society in which our initial education in virtue takes place. Our parents form us not only in domestic virtue, but also in monastic virtue, and in fact principally in monastic virtue, but then also in domestic virtue, which is a greater kind of virtue. And they prepare us. They uh, give us approximate potency for political virtue. Catherine Files was here, wrote her senior thesis about this. Political virtues are the qualities that enable us to participate in the highest common good of the human active life, the common good of the polis, the city, or polity. Now, the common good of a society is twofold. We can distinguish between an intrinsic com- common good, which is the order that unifies a society, that makes it to be a society, we can distinguish that from an extrinsic common good, which is the common good intended by the one who brings about the intrinsic common good by his governance. The intrinsic common good of the polity is peace, the tranquility of order, as Augustine calls it, that results from justice and prudent governance. This piece is a thing of beauty in which the splendid virtues of citizens are brought into a harmonious unity, like a symphony of human life which imitates the beauty of heaven. As Socrates says in the Republic, no city can be happy which is not designed by artists who imitate the heavenly pattern. (coughs) The extrinsic common good of the city of the civitas, the polis, is found in happiness. As Aristotle teaches, a city is founded for living well. And as we know, happiness is living well and doing well. That is, acting according to moral virtue. But there is a difficulty here, for virtuous actions seem to be singular and not communicable to many. Lord Nelson's action of courage is not my act, it's his act. It seems to be a private good. How can this be the extrinsic common good of the city? The key here, as de Konings' friend Jacques de Montléon argues, and as TSC tutor Gregory Fröhlich has shown in great detail, is friendship. We enjoy the virtuous activities of our friends as our own goods above all, of course, when we act together with them, but even when we simply contemplate our friends' actions. We see this very clearly in military or naval friendship. For example, Lord Nelson's friendship with his comrades in acts of supremely excellent naval courage made those acts of courage a common good, common first to Lord Nelson and his officers, to all the sailors of the fleet, and finally even to all those who were inspired by them. The intensity of that friendship in naval virtue is shown by the famous scene of Nelson's death at the Battle of Trafalgar, um, which you may have read about in school. As he lies dying, Lord Nelson says to his flag captain, Captain Hardy, this battle-hardened warrior, kiss me, Hardy. And Captain Hardy's tears streaming down his cheeks, he kneels down and kisses Nelson's cheek. Um, George Washington's decision to retire from political life after two terms as president, rather than seizing lifelong power, was seen as an act of political virtue, aimed at preserving the form of government that had been established. That act of Washington's was shared by his political friends particularly by Alexander Hamilton, who drafted the speech for him. Um, But it was shared also to some degree by all his compatriots, united to him in civic friendship. And not even only the compatriots who were actually there at the time, but even after George Washington's death, in honoring his memory, in some way we make his virtuous activity our own good, a good common to him and to us. The purpose of polity cannot, therefore, be reduced to the protection of individual rights. Note in passing, De Deconic writes, the important distinction to be made between subject of right and foundation of right that moderns tend to confuse. The right is defined by law, and law by the common good. What is he talking about? In the tradition of uh, Roman and medieval jurisprudence, the primary sense of a right is an object of justice. The virtue of justice is the firm will to give each their due. Thus, an object of justice is what is due, the thing or the action due to another. For example, a fair share of the spoils is due to Achilles. It is his right, his use. Now, this term right can be analogically extended from these objective rights to rights in a more familiar sense, to subjective rights. Subjective rights are the moral powers that we have over our objective rights. That is, Achilles has the moral power over the spoils. uh, Because they are his objective right, he has a subjective right to the spoils of war. But the primary reality are the objective rights. It is not because Achilles has a subjective right that the spoils are due to him. Rather, it is because the spoils are due to him that he has a subjective right. And since objective rights are primary, uh, subjective rights are dependent on a prior distribution of things. And this distribution is largely a matter of law or of some kind of jurisdiction. Agamemnon dividing the spoils. Unjustly in that case. But in the better case, justly. Things are are divided by law in a just way. Law is thus the foundation of rights. St. Thomas says, Lex est ratio juris." Law is the reason of right. And law is led back to a rational understanding of the true common good. Law is an ordinance of reason for the common good. Thus the distribution of objective rights on which subjective rights depends goes back to a sapiential understanding of the true good. The whole order of rights therefore is directed to the true common good. Rights therefore are ultimately justified by the common good and they ought to be distributed in such a way as to allow everyone in society of participation in the common good. Modern philosophers, such as John Locke, however, reverse this order. For them, subjective rights are the primary juridical and political reality on which everything else is founded. And these subjective rights are understood as private liberties. They thus deny the primacy of the common good, subordinating it to the private good of subjective rights. A polity founded on the primacy of subjective rights will therefore lead to an erosion of devotion to the common good. This will have, as de Konig says, execrable consequences. For when each orders the common good to his own private good, every member of society is a little tyrant. What defines the tyrant is that he orders the common good to his private good. The activities of the moral virtues, the happiness of the vita activa, are not the ultimate end of human life. The common good of the polity, which belongs to us on account of our species, is subordinated to a higher common good that belongs to us on account of our quasi-genus of intellectual being, the common good of the contemplative life. And the entire active life, including the common good of the city is ordered to the contemplative life, as disposing towards the contemplative life, the way the household disposes to the city. In contemplation, we attain to the order of the whole universe. This order, the order of the universe, is the primary good intended by God in creation. God creates creatures to manifest his own infinite goodness through the beauty of created things, which each reflect something of the divine beauty. But the greatest reflection of the divine beauty is the splendid harmony of the whole of creation, in which the manifold perfection of creatures are united by a hierarchical order of priority and governance. But the contemplative life does not rest ultimately in the intrinsic common good of the universe, the order of the universe. Rather, it reaches beyond it to the universal common good, who is God himself, the unbounded ocean of actuality, perfection, and goodness, the agent, exemplar, and final cause of everything. The highest natural perfection is therefore the contemplation of God. But there an even higher mode of participating in this highest common good. Through supernatural adoption, we are admitted into a share of the innermost life of God, where in the unspeakable happiness of the Trinitarian life, God's infinite perfection is known, expressed, loved, and given between three persons who are each the one God. This sharing in God's own life, is the common good of the heavenly Jerusalem. But this life begins here below through grace. The church is the society that is already sharing to various degrees in the supernatural common good. All other goods are only rightly loved when they are directed to this good. This is the final good. And sin, in fact, is nothing other than turning away from this good. Either by treating all goods as private goods, by ordering everything to myself, as if I were the end of the universe, or by treating a lesser common good as if it were the ultimate common good. Hence, the common goods of earthly polities must be directed to the most final common good. Um, And here, I'm going to skip over some quotes from De Coninck, where he talks about this and go and end my lecture with a long quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, our patron, from his book on kingship to the king of Cyprus. St. Thomas says the following. Through virtuous living, man is further ordained to a higher end which consists in the enjoyment of God. Consequently, since society must have the same end as the individual man, it is not the ultimate end of an assembled multitude to live virtuously, but through virtuous living to attain to the possession of God. If this end could be attained by the power of human nature, then the duty of a king would have to include the direction of men to it. Now, the higher the end to which a government is ordained, the loftier that government is. Indeed, we always find that the one to whom it pertains to achieve the final end commands those who execute the things that are ordained to that end. For example, the captain, whose business it is to regulate navigation, tells the shipbuilder what kind of ship he must construct to be suitable for navigation. But because a man does not attain his end, which is the possession of God by human power but by divine, therefore the task of leading him to that last end does not pertain to human but to divine government. Consequently, government of this kind pertains to that king who is not only a man but also God, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, a royal priesthood is derived from him, And what is more, all those who believe in Christ, insofar as they are his members, are called kings and priests. Thus, in order that spiritual things might be distinguished from earthly things, the ministry of this kingdom has been entrusted, not to earthly kings, but to priests, and most of all to the chief priest, the successor of St. Peter, the vicar of Christ, the Roman pontiff. To him, all the kings of Christendom are to be subject as to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. For those to whom pertains the care of intermediate ends should be subject to him to whom pertains the care of the ultimate end and be directed by his rule. This teaching on the relation of political authority to ecclesial authority, which follows from the teleological order of common goods, was defined ex cathedra by Pope Boniface VIII in the bull Unam Sanctam. Thank you very much for your attention.